here's a question to begin with. What would cause someone to take a job that disgraced their family name? What would it cause someone to take a job that ostracized them, that means that alienated them or separated them from the wider community? A job that actually disqualified them from being a witness in the court systems. A job that in the minds of other people, even though it was legal, lumped them together with murderers and thieves. What do you think? What, what kind of incentives would you have to offer someone to take a job like that? A whole lot of money, right? A lot of money. But that still wouldn't move a lot of people, would it? I mean, to disgrace your family name, be ostracized from your community, know that every time someone looked at you, they kind of thought you were the scum of the earth. Power might take really desperation on someone's part to move in that direction, maybe even mental illness. I mean, those are huge things to give up in the life of anyone. Well, according to the records from the first century AD, that's exactly what Jewish men gave up if they decided to take the job of being a customs collector or a tax collector for the Roman Empire. They were, according to most records, excommunicated from the synagogue. They were given, um, all the other Jews were given religious cover to lie to tax collectors. I didn't know that. They could lie with impunity. Now, legally, they would get in trouble. But the rabbi said it's okay. They were literally grouped along with the murderers and the thieves because they were often very corrupt. Now, I don't think there were any poor tax collectors. I think there was a lot of money. There was one commentator who said, Rome set it up so it took greed and graft. That's like deception to make a good tax collector. As long as Rome got its share and the tax collectors weren't lynched, they could essentially extort what they could out of the system. So it was built for corruption. So we're going to meet Levi this morning. But what's interesting is this. So Levi gives up um, acceptance in the community, honor, the ability to go to the synagogue and worship and be thought of as a decent human being, he gives it all up to become a tax collector. He gets money. He probably gets a level of power. He now has his own people. But then he gives it all up again when Jesus comes to him and says, you follow me. And so that's what we want to dig into this morning. Why did Levi follow Jesus? How total is that call to follow Jesus? What does he ask of us? Who does he call? Who does Jesus actually want to follow him? So I'm going to read the first two verses from Mark chapter 2, 13 to 17. And we're going to look at this, and I'm just calling it the joyful challenge. Because it really ought to be joyful. If you, you guys are followers of Jesus. There ought to be a large measure of joy, but it is also a challenge. And we're going to, going to look at both aspects of that joyful challenge this morning. Uh, and Levi is our case study. So verse 13, he, this is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. 
And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So why does Levi follow Jesus? Why does he turn away from the life of money and power and corruption and friends and license? Probably a large dose of hedonism, you know, pleasure, doing what he wants. Why does he turn away from all that? He's literally at his place of occupation, kind of like the disciples were at the nets, right? Jesus kind of goes right to where they are. Levi does become part of the twelve. Right, so this is a significant moment. Why does he do it? I would say this, because he had been born again. And I want to explain why I'm, why I'm kind of going there. Jesus said this when he was talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Jesus said, um, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, right? And so here's Jesus presenting himself as the kingdom of God to Levi. And we know that Levi sees all the potentials of the kingdom of God in Jesus. And that's why he gets up and he leaves all of this stuff behind. And in Luke, it actually says leaving everything behind, right? Why does Levi leave everything behind? It's like a riddle and a tongue twister at once, right? Levi, the lever of everything. Why does Levi leave everything behind? Because he sees that the one before him is in some ways the entrance to the kingdom of God. And then Jesus explains a little further. He says, that which is born of the flesh. Now, again, we're going to Jesus talking to Nicodemus, explaining how this happens. How is someone born again? He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, i.e., humans give birth to humans. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That which is born of the spirit, though, is spirit. So did you ask to be born Did you ask anyone to give birth to you? Did your little infant soul in heaven cry out to your mommy on earth? Right? No, right? In the same way, we don't ask to be born of the Spirit. This is called regeneration. And it precedes faith. Jesus then told the Nicodemus, he said, Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. So none of us should be surprised or marvel that it takes the Spirit of God acting first so that we can even see the things of God before we can respond. And so, and then Jesus says, the Spirit blows where it pleases. And I kind of like that picture. The Spirit, if you will, blew over that tax collector at his booth. Christ comes up to him. Maybe they had prior interactions again. It's a pretty small town. Jesus, pretty big figure. Something was born of the Spirit in Levi's life, which enabled him to then respond in faith and repentance. Which, as John puts it another way in the prologue to his gospel, he says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He's saying all who believed in the name of Jesus. He gave the right to become children of God. Now follow this part of the verse. Who were born 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John had understood the lesson that Jesus had taught to Nicodemus, and he was explaining that we're ultimately born because of God's will for us, not even our will for ourselves. And so that is why Levi, a man who left everything behind to become a tax collector, leaves everything behind again to follow Jesus, because the Spirit had helped him to see the kingdom of God standing in front of him and had entered, helped him to enter into the kingdom. So you have a question, right? Are you born again? Are you in your seats? Are you online? Are you born again? Has the Spirit so moved in your life that you see in Jesus all the potentials of the kingdom of God? When you see Christ, do you go, yes, he is my Lord and my Savior. I will follow him. You might say, well, how do I know if I've been born again? How can I be certain? You can be certain simply by the fact that you actually confessed and received Christ. Because that couldn't have come from just you, not just your will. And I love hearing, some of you guys have shared with me, a number of you have come to Christ in your adulthood. You know, I could ask you in this room, and you could give a brief accounting. And, and it's been interesting how a number of you share, as you look back on it, how clearly God was moving first. That's pretty common. You know, if we took time to just share our adult testimonies, you know, as kids, we perceive it less. I, so I came a believer when I was seven years old. When I was seven years old, I received Christ into my heart, and it was real, and I was young, and it never changed. You know, but a number of you came in your 20s or 30s or 40s, and you have the, the ability to look and go, you know, I could see how God was preparing and laying the groundwork. And in some ways, you're describing this work of the Spirit that's done ahead of time. You know, I can see how God was preparing me to finally actually see in Jesus the kingdom of God. And so it's kind of a beautiful thing. It's counterintuitive in some ways. And yet it always makes sense when we start to listen to each other's stories. That's why Levi leaves. If you don't see Christ as the Savior, if you hear these stories about Jesus, but they just kind of bounce off you, they don't seem to mean very much, maybe we're making too big of a deal of them, I'd say you're still in a great spot. Because God works through his word. And as long as you're willing to listen to the word of God, then in some ways the spirit of God is doing a work in you. So even if you're coming here and you don't have a whole bunch of faith or much faith at all, you're taking good steps. You know, if you're listening, and there are folks probably listening who we've never met. <laughs> good morning. You know, if you're listening and you're hearing the word of God, you're opened up to the work of God. And so I would just encourage you to keep going in that direction. Now, let's ask this. What is required of us to follow Jesus? And, I, and, I, and I'd be lying if I soft-pedaled this at all. What's required of us is the willingness to leave everything. It's the willingness to give up everything. Now, I want to show you how total that call is. Luke does something neat in his Gospels where he stacks three responses 
where Jesus says, follow me, or people offer to follow him. And it's really interesting to see their, their reaction and Jesus' reaction, because I want you to see, in some ways, how radical, how total the call of it is, but then how worth it it is, right? So we talk about the joyful challenge of following Jesus. Here we begin with really the presenting challenge, right? So this is from Luke chapter 9, and it's going to be three people in a row, and Luke just kind of puts them together like a little unit. And the first person says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And you get the feeling that at the end of that, Jesus may have looked at him and been like, so do you still want to follow me? Second encounter. Again, these are all consecutive in Luke. To another, Jesus said, follow me. Okay, just like what he said to Levi and the apostles, right in their workplace, right? And they left everything and followed him. Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now that sounds like a decent thing to do, doesn't it? Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Challenge. Third one. This is the third of three. Yet another said, this is like a combination of the first two. He offers himself. I will follow you, Lord. Here's the contingency. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. Does that seem like a good thing to do? To so and say goodbye to your mom and your brothers and sisters. Hey, I'm leaving. I'm going to go follow Jesus for a while. It does. This is a decent thing to do, right? He's not saying, let me go rob the bank first. Or, you know, I've got a bet to place on the Super Bowl. Then I'll be right back to you, Jesus. He says, no, I want to just say goodbye. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow, right? There's your hand on the plow. You're going to go furrow the field. And looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. All right, so we have three follow me's here. What is the takeaway from these follow me's? The first one is this. To follow Jesus means to give up this world. That's how I take where Jesus says the foxes, they got their little homes. The birdies, they have their little homes. I don't have a home. Now, you guys have a place to lay your head at night, right? So this isn't meant literally you're going to be thrust out homeless. Back then, it was more literal. Jesus was literally traveling around. But what Jesus is saying is, if you follow me, this world will cease to be your final, ultimate home. You won't belong here the way you used to belong here. You'll still live here, and you'll love here, and you may have families, and you might take pride in your work and do your jobs, but it won't be your final place of belonging. Jesus says, "My home, your home will now be with me. Your home will now be in me. And so you guys, I just want to remind you that if you have followed Christ, your, your ultimate home is not the house you live in. So don't make it all that you want to be in life. Don't pour all of your time and energy and passion strictly into the things of this world, but be open to the work of God. And that's hard in the suburbs because our home is our castle and we love to do things to it and make it nice and better. I do the same stuff. 
just painted our bedroom recently. I really, it's teal. I like it. It's surprising, but it works. You know, like, there's things we like to do, but it's not my home, home, home. I like in the flip side where Jesus says, uh, I'm actually going to make my home in you. Isn't that an interesting idea? I'm going to make my home in you. Now, the second and third encounters, that's, I feel like, the takeaway from the first, show us that we do have to make Jesus first in our life. Each of them had kind of the same thing, but first. Did you notice that? They kind of used the same language. Follow me, or I will follow you, but first. Now, in the, in the scheme, right, literally, Jesus may not have been stopping. He might have been on his way to the next village. He says, follow me. And they said, well, but first I've got to do this. And he's like, but I'm leaving now. Right? It would have been very tense because he literally was going. And were they going to follow him like they said they wanted to? Or they were going to go and honor their parents and bury their father and say goodbye to their mother? Jesus get this, right, is the only one who could command that kind of response. No one else has the right, I would argue, to tell you, well, don't bury your dad, or don't say goodbye to your mom. I'm more important than all of that. But when the Christ, when the God, when the God who spoke the world into existence, right, when the word of God is standing before you, when the Son of God, who's the enemy of evil, who's powerful over all things, is standing before you, and when Jesus, the Lamb of God, is going to lay down his life for you, is standing before you, he has the authority, he has the right to claim a higher allegiance than even to the people you love the very, very most in this world. And he has the right to say, no, you must follow me. No, I don't want you to bury your father. I want you to follow the word of God made flesh. I don't want you to say goodbye to your family. I'll take care of them too. It'll be okay. Trust me, you just follow me. It is radical, isn't it? It's extreme. But it's not extremism. The way we criticize it today, because it's actually exactly what Jesus is worth. There's nothing extreme about God saying to his people, come to me. Don't delay. Don't think, you know, I'll start following Jesus, but first I got to get this stuff done. You know, first I want to mess around a little bit and sow my wild or first I want to do this or this. So I want you guys to continue to feel that urgency. I've noticed that as um, some Christians enter their 30s and 40s, sometimes they kind of cool off. They cool off to Jesus a little bit. You know, this life starts to be a little more attractive. They've got a little more autonomy, a little more money sometimes, the ability to do the things they want. And they start to think, well, you know, I'll get to Jesus, but first, you know, first I want to do this. You know, I'll get to the church, but first I want to set up my nest egg, you know, or I'll give up my time, but first I really want to, I want to go here and I want to do this and I really got to take that class and I want to do this. There's a lot of but firsts that can come in and they can all sort of 
be okay, right? Again, it wasn't a sin to go bury your dad and say goodbye to your mom. But that sense of indefinitely delaying, does that make sense to you guys? That's a temptation that resonates with me, to indefinitely delay the radical call of Jesus Christ. And you'll have to work through that, because you'll have plenty of other but firsts, plenty of other good opportunities you could do each day until the day you die, and you never actually got to fully following Christ with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Well, you might say, is it worth it? Is it worth it? It's a really big call. Is it worth it? Peter once said to Jesus in the context of when the rich young ruler claimed, he said, I've been really good. Jesus said, hey, you have. Now just sell everything. And what did he say to him? And then come follow me. Remember this story? He said, only one thing remains. Just sell all you have, give it to the poor. You're not going to need it anymore, right? And then follow me. And he said he went away sad because he had a lot of money. And G Peter said to Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. He's like, we, we, we did. We left it all and we're following you. And underneath that is this little question, right? Is it worth it? It seems that Peter left a lot behind. We've been to his mother-in-law's house. Not sure where his wife was. She might have been following along or occasionally intersecting. You know, I'm sure they went home periodically. You know, left behind a business. Levi left behind wealth. He left behind his power. Right? These guys were leaving big things behind, men and women. And there are points in your Christian life where you're going to wonder, is it really worth it? Is Jesus really worth all of this? Because you'll look around and you'll see people doing and getting and being things that you want to do and get and be. And you'll wonder, you know, I've left, I've left all that behind, but am I missing out? Did I make the right decision? Is Christ worth it? I love Jesus' answer. This is what he tells Peter. I just want you to see how full his answer is. Truly. I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers. He's obviously not being literal. You don't have a hundred mothers, right? Um, and children and lands with persecution, with persecution, right? And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is why it's a joyful challenge. Christ has challenged you to leave everything behind and follow him. But look at what he's promising you ahead. He's saying no one who's left behind all these things will not receive back the manifold blessings of God. Yes, sometimes with persecution in this life and eternal life in the age to come. That's the promise. That's what Jesus replied to Peter. Peter said, we left everything behind. Unsaid, was it worth it? Jesus answered, oh yes it is, Peter. It's worth it every single day. 
Giving your life to your God is always worth it. Saying, no, not today for all that will but first die. No, I'm going to follow Christ today in however that plays out. It's always worth it. Jesus says, I never have, want you to have one minute of regret for your choice to leave everything behind and follow me. I was thinking of, you guys ever seen the show Parks and Rec? I don't know if you ever watched it. It was a comedy a couple years back. And there was a segment, there was a recurring jerk, a joke called Treat Yourself. And like Treat Yourself Day was the day where two of the characters would leave the office. They'd just leave everything behind at their desk. They're like, today we're going to treat yourself. And they'd always say kind of like that. And they would spend money on themselves and go to spas. And, and they're just, and whenever they're not sure, they're like, should I really buy this new car? And the other one's like, treat yourself. And they're like, all right, I'm buying the car, right? And we feel that tension. Some days we just want to, you know, have treat yourself day. Well, I just want to do what I want to do. And I'm tired of following Jesus. And I'm going to indulge what I want to indulge. And I'm sick of leaving everything behind. And Jesus is saying, stay the course. Keep your hand to the plow. One day I'm going to treat you right i'm going to treat yourself in a way you can't even grasp because i'm the god and i can do what i want and i can pour out the blessings the way i want to pour them and i'm going to pour them out on you in this life and i'm going to pour out eternal life on you in the age to come and so you got to get the feeling peter thought to himself all right this is jesus talking he never lies and he has the power to do it so here's the final step here. Let's get back to Levi. If anyone was actually last, it was Levi. He's now first, right? Jesus said at the end of that, many who are first will be last and last first. So we're going to come back, wind our way back now to Levi the last, Levi the lever. And now I want you to see what, um, what he does. As he, this is Levi, reclined at the table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners, i.e. Levi's best friends, right, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, I think it's interesting they tell the disciples, not Jesus. They probably feel like the disciples will get it more. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? It makes no sense to them. Why is he wasting his time on these people? Jesus heard it. He hears it. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And I want to draw a few points here. I just, first I love Levi's heart. The very first thing he does is he wants all his crazy friends to meet Jesus. He gets the gang back together. The tax collectors and sinners. That word sinners, it, it's a shorthand for people who willfully do bad things uh, kind of as part of their life. Right? These are the pimps, the drug dealers, the white-collar criminals, right? Name your fashion, legally legal, like they're all lumped here, the prostitutes, right? These are Levi's people, and they're all at Levi's big house. And he's rich because he was a tax collector, and he's throwing a party. So the sole sake that these people can meet Jesus Christ. 
How would you feel in that crowd? I was thinking about this. Would I be okay eating food at a party that I know came from corruption? Like ill-gotten gain, right? My conscience would probably be a little gone. I don't know about that, Jesus. You know, why are we hanging out here, right? I'm not sure this is good. Like, they're not really good people. And what Jesus shows us is that when we're motivated by the gospel, there's no place we can't go. There's no place we shouldn't go. And there's no people we shouldn't be with. If we're motivated by the gospel, nothing is off limits for the Christian as long as it doesn't pull you into the sin with it. These folks are not at the synagogue. They're not allowed in the synagogue. How are they going to meet the great physician? They're not going out to the crowd by the sea. They're at the party. They're in the brothel. They're at the bars. They're where the party is at. And Jesus is on the physician, and they're the sick, and I can't minister them in places where they're not. And that's why I'm here, because I want to minister to them. He doesn't say, oh, they're really good-hearted people who don't need a Savior. He acknowledges they're sinful people, but they're not off-limits. Do you guys want to be fishers of men? Because if you do, you got to go where the fish are. Generally, they're not here. Sometimes they are. The Lord's moving. Jesus said, look, there are some people who I can only meet here. That's why I'm here. If I don't come here, how are they going to hear me? I want you to think about places where you might be challenged to go literally, to be with people literally who make you feel uncomfortable literally, and ask yourself, can I do that for the sake of the gospel, or have I written them off? Remember this grid? This ring a bell at all? So the Pharisees, what quadrant did they think they were in? Right up here, right? They're like, we're number one. We're holy and we're clean. And they look around this room, tax collectors and sinners, and where do they think all those people are? Uh, They're number three. They're common. They're unclean. Why on earth would Jesus hang out with a bunch of people like this? And here's what's going on in their minds, the Pharisees' minds. They're thinking, you know what, party animals, if you want to get up to number one with us, you go through the law. It's easy. You go to the Torah, you obey it, and you obey it the way we say you need to obey it. That's how you moved around the grid, right? You want to go from three to one, you obey the law completely, the way the Pharisees interpreted it. And what Jesus knew was this grid does not bring salvation. And Jesus doesn't look at us and he say, all right, you want to get to heaven, get working, move your way through the grid, start following the law, start loving perfectly, start doing everything. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, I'm coming down from number one and I'm going to number three because I got to bring you up with me. That's the whole the part of the incarnation, right? I'm taking on your fallen flesh. I'm going to your crazy parties because you're sick and you need a doctor. You don't need a better set of rules. You need your souls to be transformed. You need the spirit to blow so that you can even see the kingdom of God. So you can respond in faith and repentance and enter the kingdom of God. And that's why we should worship Jesus. Because he came down to us 
We're all number three people. He came down to the unclean and to the sinners, and he came out of his deep love for them to bring them up to him and to make them holy and to make them clean. All right. I'm going to pull off the four points of application here. The first is this. What are you going to do with this stuff on Monday, right? You're going to bless the Lord with all your soul. Right? May our first response, when we remember that Christ left the glories of heaven to bring us hardened sinners, just like Levi, to repentance, to new life, calls us to leave everything, promises to give us even more, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, don't forget it, don't ever forget it, all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, and he heals all your diseases. So Monday morning, may you work, wake up and may you worship the Lord and remember and choose not to forget how he has delivered you. If you came at a young age, think about this. Who would you have become without Jesus? You might not have seen just how vile you could get, right? Uh, looking back as adults, we can see the patterns of our youth and how they might have increased and gotten worse if God's grace hadn't come in and rescued us. So return to that. Number two, follow him. Follow him. Follow him. You might say, Peter, I like Jesus, but I sure don't like Christians. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Jesus, he's okay. Church can't handle it. I don't want to be like this people. How would you answer that to someone? You know, if they're like, you know, I, I can take Jesus, but I don't want to become like a hypocritical Christian. Well, first we acknowledge there's some truth in that. There's a lot of hypocrisy at times in the church. But Jesus is not a Christian. Right? Jesus is the Christ. Jesus didn't tell people to follow them, his disciples. He said, follow me, Christ. None of us in this room are the Christ, right? But the Christ is in this room, ministering by his word and by his spirit. And he still says, follow me. Follow me. Number three, on the theme of hypocrisy, Jesus once told his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We always have to just watch out for it because religion often breeds hypocrisy. February is Black History Month, and I was reading about the formation of the AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church. I had a friend who was an AME minister for years who went to the same seminary. I didn't know how it started, but it started back around 1787, a long time ago, in Philadelphia, a galaxy far, far away. And there was a group of, there were two black pastors in this church called St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church. And they were praying, and they were on their knees with a group of black parishioners. And one of the, the I think it was one of the deacons or leaders of the church came up to them and said, you can't pray here. you got to pray over there. And they didn't know it, but the church had recently rearranged its segregated seating. 
And one of the pastors said, you know, let's let us finish praying. We'll move when we're done praying. And he said, if you don't move now, I'm going to have you move by force. And that's happening in the church. It was. So they actually stayed. They finished praying and then they left. And they said, we really need to be part of a church where we have the dignity that's due us as people made in the image of God and saved by the blood of God. And it was the hypocrisy manifested this time by racism that led to the formation of the AME church. And it's so easy to see it, right, 200 years back. It's much harder to see today where we might also be falling prey. And so we just want to watch out. And so Jesus says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, whatever generation or age you're in. Last thing is this. You guys have been very patient. Um, I want you to just go throw a rock in Jesus' party once COVID's over. Pull a Levi here. Gather your wildest, craziest friends. Yes, feel free to serve adult beverages, uh, unless you have people recovering from alcoholism. I'm sure there are plenty of uh, wine flowing in Levi's house. You know, but whatever it is, have a genuine party. Invite a few disciples with you. Pray beforehand for the Spirit of God to move, and then don't be ashamed of Christ. When the doors of conversation swing open, go boldly and gently and hold up Jesus Christ. Don't hold up yourself or your church. But let's follow Levi's lead, right? Levi shows us he was so not ashamed of Jesus, and Jesus was not ashamed of Levi. And I think that's a good example for us. Don't be ashamed of Christ. He's never ashamed of you.